Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This morning, we're going to spend most of our time in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 3, just a little review in our study of Revelation. We started Revelation 11 a couple of weeks ago. And this is one of the most significant chapters in the prophecy in Revelation. It is a key chapter because it gives us certain uh, elements of chronology, but it's important doctrinally because it speaks of God's tremendous grace and initiative, even in this time period that is a period of tremendous uh, tremendous persecution of believers, a time of tr- tremendous judgment, a time when there are uh, wars and calamities that are unprecedented in human history. And as we come to this sort of center section in Revelation chapters 10 through 14, John is given a little book of prophecies by the strong angel in chapter 10. And the next few chapters explain these, these prophecies that are in this little book. And the first one is, relates to the grace of God in sending two witnesses to Israel. These are in addition to the 144,000, uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that are, that are mentioned back in chapter, uh, chapter 7. And the first thing John sees is this action of measuring the temple, that there was given to him a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up, measure the temple of God, the altar, those who worship in it. And they, it was to leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, when you look at these two verses... As I pointed out before, they must be understood uh, together. They contrast with one another. He is to measure three things, the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. We saw that the word temple there is the Greek word naos, referring to those inner buildings, the holy of holies, the holy place itself, and that courtyard immediately around it where the altar, the bronze altar, the altar of uh, sacrifice was located and those who worship in it. And this is contrasted to the fact that he was to not measure the, the outer courts. He was to cast out those outside. So we see by the contrast that verse 2 is a depiction of God's rejection of those outside and his acceptance of those inside. So the concept of cast out equals rejection. It is God measuring and evaluating um, the, the temple, the worship in light of the fact that, that this is, will, will lead to his reestablished relationship with a regenerate Israel by the end of the tribulation period. So we began to ask a series of questions. One of these was to define which temple uh, we were talking about, whether this was a heavenly temple or an earthly temple. We saw that in context it is an earthly temple a temple located in Jerusalem. Then we asked the question, is this an apostate temple or an approved temple? And we saw that even though the, the motivation of those who built it might 
be to restore Judaism uh, to Israel, even though those who built it may not be saved, that that does not mean that God is not showing approval here among those who are worshiping with the right uh, belief in Jesus as Messiah, which is what ha- what is happening. We saw in the Old Testament that there are numerous passages that talk about uh, God is not desiring sacrifices, but the right heart, or that is the right thinking, the right belief system toward him. The sacrificial was only external. It only had to do with ritual, and the ritual was to depict a spiritual reality. And it was that spiritual reality that was important, having uh, accepted God's plan of salvation in the Old Testament, which was based on the promise that God would send a Savior, uh, the Messiah, who would save Israel from their sins. And so even though the temple may not have been built by those who were believers, even though their motivation may come out of uh, Judaism, nevertheless, uh, God recognizes this is his temple. Everywhere it's mentioned, it's called the temple of God. Second Thessalonians 2, when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple of God, Jesus said, when you see the abomination in the holy place. So God recognizes that this place is his because historically, geographically, he has put his name on the temple mount. We also looked at a timeline of the temples, just so you understand that there are four temples in the Bible. Historically, we have to understand what God is doing. The temporary dwelling place of God initially was the tabernacle. It was designed to be sort of a mobile home for God as the Israelites were going through the wilderness on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. This was constructed in 1446 B.C. Then in 960 B.C., Solomon constructed the first temple in Jerusalem under the guidance of his father David. The temple could not be built until David died, but David had worked out the blueprints. God had revealed the construction of the temple to him. He had laid up all of the building materials, and it was left to Solomon to build that temple. But it was destroyed in 586. God had promised Israel in the Mosaic Law that if you disobey me, I will bring a series of judgments on the nation. And the if you continue to be disobedient, you continue to worship idols, you continue to worship false gods, then I will have to remove you from the land, which was the most extreme form of punishment for the nation because this was the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had promised to give them in perpetuity that this would be theirs. But they could only live there if they were obedient to him, So there is this destruction of the first temple. So this is called the first temple period or the Solomonic period. They were out of the land then for 70 years. Jeremiah says it's to give the land rest because they had violated the Sabbaths so often that they needed to give the land 70 uh, years of rest to make up for that. So there is a return to the land in 537 or so, and they begin to rebuild the temple. This is the second temple. The leaders of the nation at that time are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is a Davidic descendant. Joshua is the uh, Hakohen Hagadol, the high priest. And it, it, the te- second temple is dedicated in 516. It's renovated by uh, Herod 
uh, beginning in about uh, 20 B.C. and completed about 46 A.D., and that is referred to as the Second Temple, the Second Temple Period. Now, on the Temple Mount, there's located the Dome of the Rock, and this would also be a defiling of the holy place where God, the mount where God has placed his name. We do not know when this will be removed, uh, but prophecy in the scripture says that it will be removed. We don't know if it's from natural disaster, if it's a result of military action. It is not something that Christians are to be seeking. You know, we're not out here. Some people have uh, suggested trying to uh, destroy the, the Dome of the Rock or to attack it to uh, somehow make prophecy happen to create a situation where Jesus will then come back. Uh, that's not part of Christianity. That is a part of Islamic eschatology to try to uh, uh, create a scenario so that the their Messiah, the Mahdi, in, uh, 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 among, the, uh, among the Muslims will return if they generate enough chaos. Hmm. That's what Ahmadinejad is trying to do in, in Iran, is if he can create enough chaos and violence, then the uh, 13th Imam will come back, and that's the, the Mahdi, and he will then bring about uh, the, the paradise on earth that is, is promised in the Quran. And so you have to understand sometimes when you read the news or listen to uh, newscasters that uh, as you think about and hear about what Iran is doing, seeking nuclear weapons, that that what motivates them in their in their uh, this is not radical Islamic eschatology, by the way, this is just normative Islamic eschatology, and they have to generate the scenario in order to bring back the Mahdi. Now that's not part of Christianity. What we know is that in God's time a time that and no man knoweth the, the day or the hour that Jesus will return for the church. That will be followed by a seven-year period of tribulation. During that time, sometime maybe immediately before the tribulation or during it, there will be the beginnings of a new temple on the Temple Mount. Halfway through the tribulation period, it will be desecrated by the Antichrist and uh, then Jesus will return at the end of the seven-year tribulation period to establish his uh, kingdom on earth. The millennial temple will be constructed, which is the fourth temple. So we, this is the uh, plan in history. What we're looking at now is the second temple. First temple was Solomon's temple from 960 to 586. And then the second temple period is the period from the construction of Zerubbabel's temple, its inauguration in 516 through its destruction in A.D. 70. Here's an artist's conception of the temple during the Maccabean period. This was the period of roughly 200, uh, 200 B.C. Now, this is important because that forms the backdrop for understanding the next section of chapter 11, which deals with these two witnesses that God brings upon the scene. And in Revelation 11.3, we read, God saying, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. It was typical of prophets in the Old Testament that when they were challenging Israel, the nation, with their disobedience to God, their idolatry, their rejection of God, that they would 
uh, visually demonstrate God's uh, sorrow, God's grief over their uh, disobedience by putting on sackcloth. It was a fabric made out of goat's hair, and it was extremely rough and uncomfortable. Some think it was like a burlap sack with you know, holes cut out for the arms, something like that that was just worn over the body like a tunic. Others think, others think it was more like a, a loincloth. Uh, whatever it is, it was not something that was, a, that was comfortable or fashionable. And the point was to demonstrate the sorrow of God, the grief of God, the disobedience of the people. And so that's what's going on here. As I pointed out last time, this is not for, because of the abomination of desolation. There can be many reasons why uh, they are dressed in sackcloth. The nation has been apostate for 2,000 years. And this is the nation of Israel, God's own people, who rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus came to his own, John says in John 1, 11, and his own received him not. And so there's been 2,000 years where Israel, according to Paul in Romans 11, has been set aside from the place of blessing because of their disobedience. There's still many Jews saved during the church age, but they are not in a, the position of blessing during the church age where it is not relevant whether you are Jewish or not, for there is neither uh, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave, for we are all one in Christ. But it does become an issue again after the rapture. The church is removed. God has to complete his plans and purposes for the nation Israel. And this means that there has to be a cleansing of the nation. They have to be brought to a point where they accept Jesus as their Messiah. And it is at that point that Jesus will come and bring the kingdom and establish the kingdom uh, for Israel. So as part of this, there are these Old Testament prophets that will appear on the scene. Now, there's a lot of questions as to who they are, but we have to understand what the text says. In 11.4, we read, These, that is, these two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, in order to understand this, we have to go back to uh, the place where this imagery uh, derives. And as I've pointed out many times in our study of, of Revelation, it's important to go back to the Old Testament passages in order to understand the, the backdrop, the background of these, of these passages so that we can see what is happening. When you study Revelation, people get so confused and they come up with some of the strangest interpretations. Most of it is because they haven't done their homework in the Old Testament. In many different Old Testament books, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, whether it's uh, Zechariah or Malachi, whatever the book may be, there are all these bits and pieces of, of, of the, a prophecy that depict God's plan for the future. Revelation picks up all of these loose threads, all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, and starts to put them together. But if you don't properly understand what's happening back in the Old Testament in Zechariah and Malachi and Daniel especially and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then you end up just sort of making up your own interpretation of Revelation. So one of the things that we've been doing in our study of Revelation is going back to these background passages 
in the Old Testament so that we can see that the, that the Bible doesn't just sort of make this stuff up, that it's a, the Bible is an integrated whole, and that these things don't change from Old Testament to New Testament, and it builds our confidence in the Word of God as being accurate and true and infallible. So turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3, the key background passage for Revelation 11 is Zechariah 4. But we have to understand the context of Zechariah 4, and so we have to understand the context immediately of 3 and 4, which means we have to understand to some degree uh, the background, the scope of the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zechariah is located in your English Bible in a section that is known as, as the Minor Prophets a section known as the Minor Prophets, and this is according to the way things are organized in your English Bible. Here's a chart that lists all the uh, 39 books of the Old Testament. In our English Bible, we organize them according to these five categories, the law, which would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the historical books, Joshua through Esther, uh, the uh, poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, and then the major prophets, they're major because they're big. I mean, these are 40 chapter, 50 chapter books. Uh, the major prophets, and then the minor prophets, 12 minor prophets, and we call them minor not because they are less significant, but because they're shorter. Zechariah is the largest of the minor prophets, and it is 14 chapters long. So we have our minor prophets here. And the last of the minor prophets are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These are located down in the lower right-hand hand corner. You, have, you can always remember the last book because that was the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are also called uh, post-exilic prophets. Now, in the Hebrew canon, they organized things a little differently. They had three divisions, the law or the Torah, same books as in the English, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then you had a section called the prophets, the Nevi'im in the Hebrew, and you had the former prophets and the latter prophets. And the former prophets you'll recognize as what we call historical books in the English Bible, but they were written by prophets, and they are not uh, as filled with foretelling of information as the challenge by the prophets to the nation to uh, obey God's law, to implement that which God had had established in the Mosaic Covenant. The prophets function sort of like a, a, a prosecuting attorney for God. God had established his contract with Israel, said, I will do this for you, I will bless you in these ways if you are obedient to me, if you love me and you keep my commandments. I will bless you, I will prosper you, I will expand your numbers in the land, you will be healthy and prosperous, and if you are not, then I will bring plagues upon you, and I will uh, bring famine upon you and drought upon you, and you will be conquered by your enemies, and eventually you'll be removed from the land. And so Joshua through Kings are written by prophets to show the outworking of these provisions in their early history. The latter prophets are comprised of four, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then those minor prophets we have in our English Bible are just lumped together as the twelve. 
and that's considered one book in the Hebrew canon. And then you have the writings, which are the right-hand column, Psalms through Chronicles. So these are uh, help us to understand the structure of the Bible. Now, time-wise, we can set up a timeline. The law covers the period from the creation through the entry into the land, Genesis through Deuteronomy, written about 1404 B.C. by Moses. Uh, then you have those historical books, Joshua through Esther, covering the period from the entry into the land, about 1404 B.C., to the uh, time of, uh, of the... Uh, Babylonian captivity, which begins in 586, the return from the Babylonian captivity in 537, up through the period of uh, Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, up to about 440 B.C. So that's the historical period, uh, and your main writers historically after the exile are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, these other Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel are all written pre-exile. Uh, Ezekiel and Daniel are written uh, during the exile. Daniel is almost exclusively within the exilic period. And then you have the post-exilic prophets, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Zechariah is actually written first, even though it's almost uh, exactly synonymous with the time of of Haggai, and then you have Malachi, and all of this is about 500 years, 400 to 500 years before the cross. So that just kind of orients you in terms of the uh, time in which this was written. It, it, outside of the, the major prophets, outside of Isaiah, Zechariah is the most messianic of all of the Old Testament prophets. He said, tells us in just those, these 14 chapters, he tells us a tremendous amount about uh, the Messiah. That is the focus of Zechariah. Zechariah is um, focusing on a challenge to the people. Uh, as the same as Haggai. Haggai is more uh, a little more negative. Zechariah is more encouraging. But the focus of both is to challenge the people to complete the rebuilding of the temple. For as the Jews began to return from Persia uh, after the decree of Cyrus the Great that they can return and rebuild the temple, uh, they they came back and they were uh, there were various things done by the people who were living in the land who were uh, not Israelites. The policy of the Assyrians and others had been to repopulate other ethnic groups into conquered countries. So you had sort of a a mixed population, and you had people that, there that weren't excited about the Jews returning to the land to reestablish their nation. How modern sounding, isn't it? And so there were these various uh, terrorist activities from the people who had taken up residence in the land to try to keep them from rebuilding the temple. So the people became discouraged, and they stopped uh, the work on the temple for about 15 years before God sends Haggai and Zechariah to challenge them to finish the project, which they finally complete in 516. Zechariah himself was a Levite. He's born during the Babylonian captivity period, and he is the son and the grandson of priests. His father was named Berechiah, his father named Edo, and he comes back 
uh, to the land where he is both a prophet and a priest. So he is like Jeremiah in that sense. He returns in that first group that comes back with Zerubbabel, who is to be the governor of the province of, of uh, Judah, Judah, and uh, Joshua, who is the high priest. About 50,000 returned uh, with them from, uh, from Persia. We have to remember that the nation went out under discipline in two stages. The first stage, the north went out in 722, and the second stage, the south went out in 586. But just a small group returns, 50,000 is not very many. They just come back from Babylon. They don't come back from Egypt. They're not returning from the area now known as Turkey or from Greece. They've been scattered throughout, but it's just a small group that comes back that comes back from Babylon. They, they return, and as they return, they uh, begin to reinstate the sacrificial system. Now, this is important for understanding the role of these two witnesses we're going to talk about in Revelation 11, and just in trying to work our way through this. Uh, the prophet uh, is Zechariah, the ruler, the governor is Zerubbabel, the high priest is Joshua, and we're told in Ezra chapter 3 that Zerubbabel and Joshua reinstate the temple sacrifices when they return, which would be about 537 B.C. in the seventh month of the year, which is in the fall of the year. They reinstitute the sacrifices before the foundation of the temple began. So they start the, the sacrifices all over again, and it's some time before the temple begins, and it's even another uh, 15 or 16 years after that before the uh, temple will be completed and the temple will be uh, dedicated. Now we come to Zechariah itself, and we look at his name, and his name means uh, God remembers. Now, for some reason, my slide just deleted the translation there that should be within the quotes, but what should be there is God remembers. That's what Zechariah means. Uh, Ayah, the, at the end, that's the first syllable in Yahweh, the name of God, and Zakar is the Hebrew verb for remembering. So the thrust of Zechariah is that God remembers. He has not forgotten his people. Remember what God said in the law. He said, I will take you out of the land, but I will bring you back. Solomon, in his dedicatory prayer of the temple, said, When this happens, God, when they are disobedient, you take them out of the land. When they turn and call upon you, uh, bring them back to the land. Be faithful, be faithful to your promise. And so Zechariah's name is a reminder that God is faithful to his promise, faithful to his covenant, and that God is bringing uh, going to bring the people back t- to the land, and this is his plan and his purpose. Now, we come to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. This is in the middle of a section that deals with various night visions that Zechariah has. Uh, if you look at the basic structure of the book, it begins with a call to turn back to God. We usually translate that repent, but that's such a... That's a, a word that is loaded with a lot of religious misunderstanding. 
The word basically means to, to move from one position to another. Instead of turning your back to God, now you're going to turn to God. It's the Hebrew word shuv. And if there's a play on words here, if you turn to God, God will turn to you. Even today in Israel, if a secular uh, Jew becomes religious, they call it doing shuva. You're turning back to God. And so this is the call to turn back to God in the first six verses. And then there's eight night visions that uh, are described in, in this section. And the one we're, we're focusing on, the middle two, which is at the very center of this section, the cleansing of Joshua the high priest and the golden lampstand and olive trees. Now, why are we looking at Zechariah 3 when we really want to look at Zechariah 4? Well, one reason is just context. The other reason is there's something unique about both of these chapters. Both deal with two actual historical figures as opposed to the other visions. These deal with the actual historical leaders of the exiles, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. Second, both of these chapters deal with the temple and relate to and refer to temple furniture. And then third, both of these chapters have messianic prophecies within them. Now what happens in chapter 3 is that Joshua the high priest, who is... Uh, one of the two key leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, are the two leaders, uh, appears in a vision, night vision, according to verse 1, standing in a courtroom setting before the God of the universe. But he is being challenged. It's a picture of a challenge by uh, a defense attorney, or excuse me, a challenge by a prosecutor. Satan is pictured in that role as the accuser. In fact, his name, Shatan, means the accuser. And here we see how that works. He works the same way today in relation to believers. He's standing at the right hand opposing, and that's that same word there. New King James translates it opposing. I think New American Standard translates it correctly as accusing. The uh, Shatan stands at the right hand to accuse him, that is to accuse uh, Joshua. And in verse 2 we read, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan rebuking him for challenging and questioning the validity of Joshua's service. Now, the reason Satan accuses Joshua is because he is said to be uh, filthy. He is unclean. Zechariah 3.3 says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. Now, the angel is the angel of the Lord. These filthy garments, filthy is a sanitized translation from the Hebrew. Uh, the word in French would be merde. The word in uh, English would be any synonym you wish that relates to manure or excrement or feces. It is not a pleasant picture. He is standing in a robe that has been smeared with excrement. And this is a picture of sin, that he is ritually and personally defiled because of sin. Isaiah in Isaiah 64 says that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Now, it's a different word that's used there, but the image is the same, that none of us are righteous before God. All of our best deeds are 
filthy in God's sight. Isaiah says your works of righteousness are like filthy rags. He doesn't say your works of unrighteousness, but your works of righteousness are like filthy rags. And so uh, Satan is accusing Joshua uh, before the Lord and saying he's not worthy to be the high priest. He has violated the law. Uh, Leviticus chapter 22 says that the high priest has to be clean. He cannot come before uh, God or serve as high priest if he is defiled. And the answer is given by the Lord in verse 2. He rebukes Satan and he says, uh, Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, notice that. He's chosen Jerusalem. God has still chosen Jerusalem. Even though they're apostate, that choice has not gone away. That is still his city. That is still his people. They are still his people, and that is still his mount. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Another thing about introducing that phrase, who has chosen Jerusalem, here is the theme of the book, is God's going to remember Jerusalem. He won't forget it. He chose it, and there is a future for Jerusalem. And then he refers to uh, Zechariah, and he says, Is he not like a brand plucked from the fire? Now, don't read too much into that. He's not alluding to uh, the lake of fire there. He's simply using a common idiom for someone who has experienced a, a narrow escape. And so he is going to solve, God is going to solve Joshua's problem. This is, the, uh, this is the solution. We have this filth that comes from sin, and it, this must be solved. And it's ultimately resolved at the cross. The situation is that God is perfectly righteous and just. Righteousness refers to his absolute standard of perfection. No one meets it. Not one single human being meets it. And God is just. That means that he has to... Uh, apply the standards of his character to every human being, and as a result, we are all condemned. We are minusar. No matter how good we are, we still lack the righteousness that God demands, and so as a result of that, we are condemned. Isaiah 64, 6, we are all like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to me sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So how do we become righteous? Well, our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross and his righteousness is then imputed to us when we put our faith and trust in him. At the cross, he pays the penalty for sin. It's resolved. It's wiped out. When we trust in him, then his righteousness is applied to us. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filthy rags, our filthy garments. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And as a result of that, he declares us to be righteous. Not because we changed, but because there's a, our legal status before God has changed because of the imputation of righteousness. This is what it means to be justified by faith alone. As a result of that, God can bless us, not because we obey or disobey, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so this is what is then depicted in the fourth verse. Then he answered, 
that is, God answered, spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, uh, that is, the one on the right hand, See, I've removed your iniquity. Uh, God is speaking to Joshua and says to him, he said, See, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. These were not just, he's not just getting clothes from Walmart. He's not just getting new clothes from the Salvation Army Depot. He is getting the finest garments that God can supply better than what you can get at Nordstrom or Neiman's or any place else around. And that is a picture of God clothing us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's grace. It's God's gift to us that he does everything for us and we don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Now that pictures for us what God is going to then do to the nation Israel in the future. And how God brings that about for the nation at the end of the tribulation is going to be through these two witnesses who will uh, function in a role similar to that of Joshua and Zerubbabel. So we just barely got started on this. We'll get into it more, uh, finish it up next time. I have to quit early because of the congregational meeting. So let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you have given us these pictures in the Old Testament that help us to understand our salvation, that it's not dependent on who we are, what we've done. And even our very best is, is just still filth in your sight. But you provided us with a perfect Savior, the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in his humanity without sin, therefore qualified to go to the cross. And on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. That, and in that, he who knew no sin, he who was perfect, became sin for us. That is, he was judicially imputed with our sin so that he could pay the penalty for that in his body on the cross. And then all we have to do to appropriate that is to believe in him, to trust in him, to believe that Christ alone can give us eternal salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's not saved, anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is trust in Jesus as your Savior. You don't need to pray to God, walk an aisle, raise your hand, sign a piece of paper. None of that's relevant. The only thing that matters is that you believe Jesus died for you. And God in his omniscience knows what you're trusting in. And at that instant, you are, receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You are regenerate and you receive eternal life that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us to live in light of our regeneration, live in light of our salvation. This is the challenge that the Lord gives to Joshua in the next section, that we are to live in light of that and to fulfill the ministry that you have given us. And so we, take, we recognize that is the challenge. We're not saved simply to have eternal life, but we are saved to grow spiritually and to serve you in our lives. And we pray that we might take that challenge seriously. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.